Let's begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. We'll go down to the Bible memory work, which is from the Catechism. It's the, uh, the Table of Duties to Children. All right, Ephesians 6. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and your mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. Ephesians 6, 1 to 3. Let us pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. And uh, Luther's evening prayer. I thank you, my heavenly Father, through Jesus Christ, your dear Son, that you have graciously kept me this day. And I pray that you would forgive me all my sins where I have done wrong and graciously keep me this night. For into your hands I commend myself, my body and soul and all things. Let your holy angel be with me, that the evil foe may have no power over me. Amen. The Almighty and merciful Lord, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, bless us and keep us. Amen. All right. Head off to Sunday school. I'm actually not joking. I'm really going to take this off. Um, I also need a place to put my phone. All right. So we're um, continuing on in the Gospel of Mark. I believe we're in chapter four. Not mistaken. And. Got to get my notes here. We uh, we're in the middle of this passage on uh, chapter four, verses nine to thirteen. So I'm going to reread that, and we already talked about it quite a bit last week, but I have more to say. So just uh, bear with me. And he said to them, "He who has ears, let him hear. To hear, let him hear." But when he was alone, those around him with the twelve, asked him about the parable. Remember, we just come off the parable of the sower, the first part of the parable of the sower. And he said to them, To you it has been given to know the mystery of the kingdom of God, but to those who are outside all things come in parables, so that seeing they may see and not perceive, and hearing they may hear and not understand, lest they should turn and their sins be forgiven them. All right, and we talked about how uh, this section um, has to do with this idea of the teaching of Jesus taking faith to perceive and to understand, right? And we had talked about, uh, like, the if, if you remember my rant about modern commentaries, right, these biblical commentaries, they're these exercises in academia um, that go into all this grammar and everything, but oftentimes they're not even written by uh, faithful Christians, right? They're just kind of academic type things. And um, what we really need as Christians is not commentaries as much as sermons, right? We need uh, things that are preached out of faith, taught out of faith. And to understand, we need to have faith, right? And um, I, I said when I, I left off kind of ranting about this that the uh, one of the areas that this has an effect in, this understanding of what Jesus says here that not everyone, uh, that those who are on the outside, those who are unbelievers, will not understand everything that they hear from Jesus, 
right? We did talk about the gospel, that the, the gospel is used to call, but at the same time, an unbeliever doesn't fully understand the mysteries of the kingdom yet until, they're, until they do come to faith. That one of the um, consequences of this is the way that I think we do apologetics. And so the word, um, we're in Mark 4 here, I should write that down. So the word uh, apologetics, I don't know how familiar you are with this. It comes from the Greek word apologia, which um, to make an apology, which is the word in Greek for defense. So the practice of apologetics is the practice of defending the faith, right, or arguing for the faith. And um, this is... I mean, you guys probably know kind of what apologetics are, but this is the uh, type of stuff that you, you've probably read a book or seen a movie. There's what? What's the um, the case for Christ? Is that Lee Strobel? Is that who that is? Yeah, that's like an old school classic. One. Yeah, it's a classic one. Um, or uh, the other the other big thing today is the uh, Answers in Genesis organization. I mean, they've been around forever, but they do the Creation Museum and the Ark encounter that we're going to go see, um, or some of us are going to go see in April. All right, uh, let me know if you still want to go to that. If uh, we haven't we haven't bought tickets yet, so we're we're still good to go. Um, so apologetics is is this kind of thing, right? That you're Defending things like the historicity of the resurrection or defending things like the uh, ability of or the 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 idea that, that God could create the world in six days or um, th- those often those types of things, the kind of uh, what, what I call like the stumbling blocks that people that people fall into. Right, and you're trying to kind of remove those stumbling blocks. So that I don't want to turn this whole class into apologetics, but just a couple kind of preliminary things, right? So defense of the faith, we're trying to remove stumbling blocks. And the way I, reason I frame it like this is because what, one of the common mistakes that people first make with apologetics is that that they kind of assume people assume that if people just understood if people just got through their heads right through their thick skulls that um jesus rose from the dead then they would be a christian right if they just understood and this kind of idea that we can argue someone into the faith and uh, the bible is very clear that what creates faith is the gospel is the word right um so the apologetics defense does not equal it cannot create faith right what it can do is it can remove, right? It can remove stumbling blocks, so that the word can be proclaimed with freedom, right? So that the word is not offensive when it reaches their ears, right? So if someone just could not believe that Jesus rose from the dead, if you can convince them that it's possible that Jesus rose from the dead, then when the gospel is preached, then the gospel can better do its work, right? So that's kind of the basic idea here: is we're not we're not trying to argue anyone into the faith. We're just trying to remove people's stumbling blocks before they hear the gospel, right? Okay, so uh, this idea, though, about Mark 4 is important because there's basically two theories of of how to do apologetics, and I think they work in tandem. I think there's a place for both of them, but I kind of want to argue that one of them is in some ways superior. So... Uh, the two theories of apologetics are uh, evidential and uh, presuppositional. Oh, can't write. Presuppositional. Right. Evidential and presuppositional. And uh, the stuff we've kind of already mentioned is more of your kind of classical evidential apologetics um, where especially the answers in Genesis stuff where you're looking at science and history and these kind of other disciplines and uh, trying to use external evidence to show the 
veracity or the, the trueness, the veracity of the scriptures, right? You're using kind of external evidence, right? This is kind of external, right? So you're thinking about things like science and history and, and whatnot to, to show the veracity of the scriptures. Does that make sense? Um, presuppositional, on the other hand, is not based on other external disciplines. It's much more uh, theological, I think, in some ways, to use that term, and uh, more internal thinking. And it's a little bit hard to wrap your head around, but I think this is shown forth a little bit, and I think in some ways it's superior uh, to evidential. I think evidential has its spot, right? Like I think, um, actually, I think evidential is, um, and well, maybe I'll talk about this a little more. Evidential in some ways is better for people who are already Christian, right? Um, presuppositional, I think, is a little bit better when you're talking to someone who's not a Christian, right? Okay, so what is presuppositional apologetics? So presuppositional apologetics has to do with um, starting at people's presuppositions and starting specifically with your own presupposition that Christianity is true and that the scriptures are true and that God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the triune God of the scriptures, is the God creator of the universe. And the reason it starts there is this uh, you can you can look this up and I I'm not gonna be able to unless I turn this into a whole class on apologetics not gonna be able to explain this thoroughly enough but you can look this up the basic idea is that whenever you start to engage in evidential apologetics with someone who's not a Christian you're kind of already seeding ground to them right so if if you're arguing with with uh, someone who's um, totally bought into the whatever the scientific worldview is, right? And uh, you say, okay, well, I'm going to try and prove to you using science that my God is the right God. You're kind of already admitting on a presuppositional level that your God might not be the true God, right? If you're saying, I'm going to try and prove using this external thing, using this external science that, that my God is the right God of, of the different options you have of God to believe, right? Or that the scriptures are better than, say, the, the, um, the Quran, right? That you're already kind of allowing the possibility that the scriptures are not true or that God is not the true, that the Father, Son, Holy Spirit is not the true God. Right? And so the person of faith always, um, in some ways, must argue from a presupposition that our God is the right God. Right, And so let me give you a concrete example of this, and then we'll try and move on a little bit, or make at least some conclusions and then move on. So um, a good example is the uh, problem of evil. So this comes up a lot in pro apologetics, like problem of evil, uh, that if if the, the Bible portrays God as good, as all-knowing, and as all-powerful, and if he is all-powerful, if he's able to do anything, and if he's all-knowing, he knows everything that's going on, then why does he allow bad things to happen? Uh, and, and he's just, right? The Bible portrays him as just. Why does he allow bad things to happen to uh, people who seem good, right? Why does he allow... Bad things happen to people who love him and who, who act uh, seemingly like good Christians. Why does he allow bad suffering to happen to them? right? And if the uh, Christian tries to kind of evidentially argue for that, right? tries to fit that together, tries to use logic, right? which is the kind of external thing at play here is logic, tries to use logic like pure logic to argue for that, he's he's never going to win, right? Because pure logic doesn't answer that question. Um, and uh, I mean, as, aside from you could say like, well, logically we don't know what God's you know eternal plans are. Logically, we don't understand everything that God understands. I mean, you could 
you can kind of say that. So again, like evidential is not totally wrong by any means, but I think the better kind of approach would be to say something like, well, how do you know what evil is, right? And that's getting at their presuppositions. Where do you get this understanding of what evil is? Because the idea here is that God is the creator. Everything else is creation. God gets to determine what's true and what's not true, right? And so if, uh, as a Christian, I don't know what evil is without God telling me, right? I don't know what wickedness is and what suffering is and what goodness is or even what logic is without God telling me. Like the presuppositionalist would say, well, you're trying to use this logical equation, like if God this, if God that, if God this, then then how does this conclusion make sense? Well, where do you even get off using logic, right? If there's no God that ordered the universe, how can you use logic? Who, who said that the presupposition of logic is even a valid way to argue? I think it is because I think God made logic, right? And so it is a circular reasoning of sorts. So this is, of course, the, the kind of anti-presuppositionalist argument is, oh, that's just circular reasoning. I would argue that everyone uses circular reasoning, right? I think, every, I think when you get down to it, um, there's always a leap of faith. There's always circular reasoning, right? The person who's using science is using circular, circular reasoning. Science is just as much faith-based as anything else, right? Um, the, the, this idea of, if you listen to scientists talk, right, they'll say, the, they'll, they'll say this all the time. Well, the majority of scientists believe this. Yeah, they have faith, right? And by the way, the majority of scientists uh, used to believe that the earth was flat and that the, the universe spun around the earth, right? Um, and now the majority of scientists don't believe that anymore, right? And there's been tons and tons of these revolutions, scientific revolutions, where the majority of scientists changed their mind on something, right? So um, science, is, science is great. Like, I love science, and I think science can help us learn truth. But, and uh, Vicar can tell you even more about this, of course, but um, here I am gassing off about scientists when my Vicar is a, is a physicist, but, um, but, but he'll tell you, we don't know anything about physics. Right? <laughs> like, we, we think we know a lot, but you know, we just find out like how wrong we are most of the time. So uh, this is the kind of problem with evidential is it's like seeding this ground where, um, you're trying to. You're always trying to use other people's methods to to prove your own point, and um, in that way, they're always kind of just free to disagree with you. And secondarily, but maybe even more importantly, is this this idea that, well, it's at the end of the day, it's faith-based. It's what's your presupposition, and my presupposition is God, right? So we argue from the standpoint of Christians. Now, okay. Hopefully that kind of makes sense. If that doesn't make sense, just go on YouTube and do some research into presuppositional versus evidential apologetics. Um, I think you'll find it very interesting, at least some of you will. And um, if you can, I can probably send one out. Watch a, what, what really convinced me of this is watching a lot of debates. And presuppositionalists, uh, the, the presuppositional apologists seem to do so much better in debates with, with atheists. Now, it's not like a big thing anymore for atheists and, and uh, a Christian apologists to debate, but um, that used to be a more popular thing, and uh, I always thought they were kind of interesting debates. But um, presuppositionalists see, seem, in my opinion, to, to have much more interesting and even coherent and better arguments for when they're debating the faith. But that said, I think it also works in tandem with evidential. I mean, I think, again, um, like the answers in Genesis stuff is great, um, especially if you're talking to someone who kind of maybe um, isn't necessarily opposed to the faith, but especially like Christians, right? Christ, uh, like I said earlier, Christians who maybe get concerned about, well, all the science is saying, all the, these scientists are saying that there's no way the earth could only be six to 10,000 years old and there's no way that it could have only been created in six days and all this stuff. And they kind of get worried themselves and kind of have these stumbling blocks. Then the evidential 
apologetics, the answers in Genesis stuff, it's very comforting to the Christian to know that, hey, look, even um, if you do some of the science thoughtfully, then it doesn't counteract the faith, right? It, in fact, it kind of shows the faith. Yeah. There is a counterargument for that. For what? The creation story. And that if God is capable of doing anything, then he could have, could have, if he wanted to, create the whole world and all the plants and animals in 10 minutes. So the fact that it's written out poetically in Genesis to take six days, there... An argument can be made that how do we know it didn't take 10 minutes? Or not, not that it didn't take 10 minutes, but that he's not capable of making it all in 10 minutes. We are basing our argument of six days on what we know in terms of what we know, people, in terms of our knowledge of physics, our knowledge of chemistry, geology. Yeah, so astronomy, not God's knowledge and capability of physics, astronomy, chemistry, etc., etc. So I'll I'll give you two quick things. I think um, that the grammar in in Hebrew in Genesis one is actually pretty clear. It's not. It is poetic, but it's not straight poetry. And um, the way that the numbers work in Genesis when he goes through the, the days and the way he describes the, um, the night and the morning and, and so on and so forth, I think that I can, I can go more into detail about cardinal and the ordinal numbers, which don't have time right now. But I think the grammar is pretty clear that that's not poetic, that it is six literal days. I couldn't care less about it being poetic. I'm, what I'm saying is that is it possible God could only need 10 minutes to do all that instead yeah, of Yeah, so the second thing I'll say is that it doesn't – so I, I obviously think God could have done it in 10 minutes. He could have done it in 30 seconds. He could have done it in uh, 30 million years. The point isn't what God could do. It's what he did do because yeah, it's something what that's – What I'm saying is that in terms of arguing this this – idea with a non-believer who has who is not going to believe the six-day thing that we as christians can come back with the argument of how do you know he couldn't do it in 10 minutes oh okay i see what you're saying i was confused yeah. i apologize and that, i think i see okay, what you're saying he did it in <laughs> six days and it's there in genesis that he did it in six days because he wanted you know that's his business not ours but who's to say God could not do the whole thing in 10 minutes? Right. Okay. So you're saying if you're arguing against someone who's who saying – Who cannot believe. Or the who could not believe it was it was six days. You just say, it, it. well, he could have done it in 10 minutes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's fine. I think that's – in some ways that's kind of a presuppositional argument that it you're, you're, what you're saying um, to be maybe a little more clear is that – you're telling the person that it you recognize that according to science, according to our understanding of science, the world does not look 6,000 years old, but you believe in a God that could create something in, say, even 10 minutes, let alone six days, that looks like it's billions of years old, but he could create it in whatever time he wanted. Okay, good. Yeah, good. All right. And the crux of the argument is our understanding of physics for a non-believer. Yeah, that's, I, I think that's um, a good point. Like, I, I, I think, um, yeah, Vicar's great about this, but I think, like, so many, the scientists themselves are actually in some ways better than this. It's the people who um, are trying to argue science but aren't actually scientists. Maybe they don't understand the fragility of it, but um, the you know, there's a lot of people who uh, they don't realize how faith-based science is, right? And how much we don't understand about. I, I mean, like 
You know, you'd think I, I, um, I had this phase in my life where I got really into nutrition science uh, and just like studying it, reading about it, watching videos, stuff. I got really interested in the science of nutrition. You'd think if anything, say the, say the earth 6,000 years old, say, um, let alone if, you know, these weirdos are right and it's, you know, 2 billion years old or whatever, um, You'd think if we had one thing figured out, it'd be like, what should we eat, right? You know how much argument there is in nutrition science? You know how much disagreement there is? Like, we cannot for the life of us figure out what to eat, right, to be healthy. We just can't. Like, we, I mean, we don't even agree about the macronutrients, protein, carbs, and fat. We don't even agree about that, let alone the micronutrients, uh, let alone do we understand how these things affect all these things that we measure in the blood. Um, like, we, I mean, we don't understand anything, right? So just, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't think people realize how fragile science is. That's, that's my point. All right, no, back to Mark 4, though. Back to Mark 4. So why do I say presuppositional um, is in some ways maybe superior is precisely because of this, right? Because you can talk your ear off I talk someone's ear off um, uh, about the, uh, you know, the external evidence and all these things, um, but we have to recognize that uh, there are people who will not understand until they have faith, right? And this is this is why it's better to just say, look, you're not going to understand this unless you understand where I'm coming from, right? I am coming from a place where I have a God. Who, who does these things and who says these things, right? And uh, this, this idea that um, we could kind of make someone understand the mysteries of the kingdom of God by using things like science and history, it just doesn't happen, right? Um, they will not hear until they have faith, right? And so again, this is kind of this this bigger point about apologetics too, is that we should really think about the purpose of apologetics as maybe removing some stumbling blocks, um, not to create faith, right? Because what creates faith is the word, and until someone has faith, they're not going to understand many of the mysteries of the kingdom of God, right? So, um, and and this is in fact the uh, the final point about this passage in Mark four is that this is a prophecy that's given in the Old Testament and repeated multiple times, and it's still true, right? Seeing they may not see and not seeing they may see and not perceive, hearing they may hear and not understand, lest they should turn and their sins be forgiven them. And that comes from um, Isaiah 6 and Jeremiah 5 and Ezekiel 12. They all repeat very similar prophecies. And uh, the context of those, by the way, is that those are the calls of the prophets. And Jesus is calling the prophets and telling them, hey, you're going to be preaching and there are going to be people who the words go into their ears, but they're not going to understand them. They're going to see you talking, but they're not going to understand what you're saying. And it's just something that Christians have to be prepared for, right? That the some of the deeper teachings of faith and the mysteries, some of the mysteries of the kingdom of God, they cannot be understood outside of faith, right? And I don't know if I said this last week. This will be my final thing. If Maybe I already said it. But one of the other applications of this that I think about oftentimes, especially when I'm preaching, and especially when I'm preaching to kind of a mixed audience of maybe like, you know, visit, first-time visitors and people who have been in the church a long time and things like that, um, is that some of the teachings of Jesus and, and the teachings of uh, the Bible are very difficult teachings, right? They're, they, they hurt, like they're not pleasant to think about, right? Like, uh, for instance, that uh, the path to eternal life is narrow and most people enter onto the wide path, right? So that, this is another reason that I think it's important to consider our faith when we think about reading the Bible is that we need to be prepared 
uh, to encounter hard things, right? We should be prepared that um, <laughs> I uh, was in a conversation the other week and the person was telling me like basically what they think about church is that uh, church should make you um, – when you leave the church, it should make you – you should feel really good. Like you should have like an emotional high basically like when you leave the church on, on any given Sunday or whatever. Like that's kind of the job is like make you feel better, right? And uh, look, Jesus doesn't do that. <laughs> like I'm sorry. I mean I – I, I kind of get what they're saying. Like, I mean, in a sense, right? Like, you want certainly you want the gospel to prevail, right? You want the um, goodness of and the truth and the beauty of of the faith to shine forth. You want people to feel forgiven and free and like they've, you know, come out of darkness into light, right? Of of course, that's all true, but. When you listen to Jesus preach, he doesn't always end his sermons on happy notes, right? Like today, right? He ends his sermon, and I, I probably should have preached this a little bit differently than I did, but um, he ends his sermon on this note, many are called, few are chosen. The end, goodbye. Like, go home now. Think about that. <laughs> like, it's not um, a hopeful message, per se, in the way that it ends. But um, my, my point is that when you have faith, that's okay, right? First of all, because when you have faith, you have the broader understanding that Jesus still died for your sins and you're still forgiven and you have the resurrection and hope and victory and all these things. It's not like that all went away, right? Just because you ended on a bad note that day or on a less happy note or whatever. Um, but the, the other thing is when you have faith, you can accept those teachings and those sayings of Jesus with seriousness and not with like anger or defensiveness, right? I think that's sometimes a problem people who are weak in the faith or less, maybe less mature in the faith run into is they get defensive whenever Jesus teaches hard things, right? And so we want our faith to be... Um, ready to receive whatever Jesus has to say to us, even if it's not easy, right? So, all right. I think I've gassed off enough about Mark 4, 9 through 13. Um, I could write a, if I was to write a commentary, I'd write it on that section. Okay. I don't like commentaries. Yeah, don't read it. Don't read it. <laughs> it's not worth it. All right. Uh, verses 14 through 20. So this is the parable of the sower explained. I'm going to do it on time. All right. Parable of the sower explained. The sower sows the word. And these are the ones by the wayside where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan comes immediately and takes away the word that was sown in their hearts. These likewise are the ones sown on stony ground, who when they hear the word, immediately receive it with gladness, and they have no root in themselves, and so endure only a time. Afterward, when tribulation or persecution arises for the word's sake, immediately they stumble. Now these are the ones sown among thorns. They are the ones who hear the word and the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches, and the desires for other things entering in choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. But these are the ones sown on good ground. Those who hear the word accept it and bear fruit, some 30-fold, some 60, and some 100. Okay, so we basically have um, four categories here. Um, the ones who are by the wayside... Right, and the birds of the air come and devour it. These are the ones who Satan has taken the immediately takes the word up before they get a chance for it to be planted. And then we have the stony ground who immediately uh, receive it and um, 
but then there's there's no root, and the sun uh, when the sun comes it scorches them, right? So uh, the stony ground, uh, sun, and uh, there's no root, right? And then the um, the third category is uh, the one in the thorns, right? And I'm, I'm going back up to the parable to, to compare these. So you kind of got to look at 1 through 9 and then um, 13 through 19, or 13 through 20, excuse me. So then the ones among the thorns, uh, it gets choked out. And what chokes them out is the deceitfulness of riches, the cares of this world, and the desire for other thing. Right. So we'll just summarize that as a world. So we got thorns. And they're choked by the cares of the world, right? And then um, finally, we have those who are sown on good ground um, and bear the fruit, right? So we got good ground and we have fruit, right? And the fruit might be 30, 60, 100 fold. It's kind of interesting how the uh, I just thought of this. The a lot of Jesus' parables I think tend to be in these uh, kind of uh, divisions of three, right? Because today we had the third, sixth, and ninth hours. You got thirty-six, eight hundred. Kind of interesting. Okay. Anyway, um, I have to I have to think about that. So um, what I kind of want to say about these in general is that. Uh, I th- think Rod brought this up last week, right? One of the messages here in this parable is uh, watch out for yourself because maybe you're not as good of ground as you think, right? And uh, that, that's a good message, um, but these are the things to kind of watch for, right? Um, that we, we get these situations which give us these images uh, to, to watch for, right? So if you find yourself... Um, falling into lots of temptation, right? If you find yourself with some kind of addiction or falling into lots of temptation or um, being oppressed in some way by Satan, like you like you feel like opposed to reading your Bible or something like that, right? Um, uh, be on the lookout that you're not uh, falling, the word's not falling on the wayside in your life, right? Um, if uh, you kind of can see in yourself at times that maybe you don't have as deep of an understanding or as deep of an appreciation or as as uh, deep of a knowledge of the word and, and of the, the doctrine and um, of the faith as you maybe think you should, right? Uh, look and, and see if, if you're not being scorched by the sun, right? So dig deeper in the word, right? Uh, spend more time in study. If, if it seems like you're getting distracted a lot from the faith by by cares of this world, right? By um, by riches, by by money, by wealth, by uh, the image that you have in in society, right? Whatever it is, um, be careful that you're not being being choked out by those cares, right? So these are the kind of things to look out for in your life. And um, I mentioned last week the the story of the um, one of the first families I started to um, teach and, and bring into the church a beautiful savior that ended up uh, getting and ending up for a variety of reasons not joining the church and I was talking to a mentor later on about the situation and he mentioned to me this um, this parable right he was like well he received the word with gladness at first but he didn't have any root and and the sun scorched him out right and then I and then I, I didn't continue on with that last week, but looking back on that situation, I can start to look at other situations that I've dealt with in the church um, and even in my own life and see some of these same things, right? Like I can't tell you how many times I've shared the word with somebody and I can tell you Satan came and snatched it up right away, right? And it did, it did not take root. Um, I, and I can also tell you that I've seen people um, 
I see this a lot, just to be completely honest, with uh, people who become delinquent members, uh, people who I think are being choked out by the cares of the world, right? They get choked out by um, getting too caught up in work or too caught up in sports activities or too caught up in whatever, and uh, they stop coming to church, right? And they're, I can tell they're getting choked out by the world. So my point is that these things are very realistic, right? These things really happen, okay? So we should be on the lookout. Um, the good news is, right, that there is still good, good fruit and good soil, right? And um, sometimes some good soil is even better than other good soil, but you never know exactly what's going to happen in the church or who might surprise you with the fruit that they bear, but... Um, these things are still happening, right? And um, man, I'm just gonna, I'll just, I'll just brag on uh, one of our students, right? Mike, right? Mike is some good soil who bears some good fruit, right? Like he, he showed up at church because his parents made him come here whenever he first got here. Uh, freshman, I hope he listens to this, right? But uh, um, what, what's he been doing every week since he's been a student here and been coming to this church, right? He brings like four friends with him. And now one of those guys is in catechesis, right? Owen, he's in catechesis now. Like, um, who Owen had, like, when he came here, he was like, this is my second time in a Christian church, right? And now he's being catechized, like, amazing, right? So these things do happen, right? So don't get, like, depressed either, because, like, you see the three things, and you're like, oh, like, look at all this, this word not bearing fruit. But this is kind of the point, right, is these are three things, and this is only one thing, right? So in some ways, like we talked about this last time, you got 25%. Um, okay, that's hopeful. That's a promise, right? 25% if we want to be mathematicians about this. But then don't forget this part too, right? That the, the 25% is an investment that bears 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold, right? And so God's kingdom grows, right? Despite the, the three-to-one odds, God's kingdom grows. Okay. Any questions on that? Yes. Yeah, go ahead. The third category. Yeah. Okay. I'm not going to read the two verses in it because we pretty much are familiar with it and understand it. Uh, is this assuming that the, the person that it is illustrating was once saved is a Christian and that has fallen away? Yeah. Um... And the reasoning I go with on that is Jesus said, whosoever endures to the end. Right. Right. So. I'm not saying it's the case with everybody. What I'm asking is, is that applicable? To the third category. When you say yeah, because you talked about you know, last week was it today the mystery of that God's grace we're saved by God's grace, but we are fallen by our own. Right. That, that's a that's a dilemma that Lutherans acknowledge, but claim through our logic we can't really explain it. So that's kind of what this is that God sowed the seed, but we as our own by our own fallenness. Right. Yeah. So I the reason I'm hesitating is because I think it could be either situation. So I I think yet yeah, the answer is yes, um, in the sense that that could be the case, yeah. right? It could be someone who really had faith, really had saving faith, right? We don't believe in as as Lutherans we're we're not Calvinistic in this way. We don't hold to the doctrine of once saved, always saved. Um, and there's plenty of reasons for that. Um, one, like, um, so we're going to do Hebrews during the Lent midweeks in, um, oh, where is it? In, in Hebrews, anyway, somewhere in Hebrews. I, I can't remember the chapter right now. Um, you have this passage about those who had been, who had been faithful and who fell away, right? So it's... Um, and there's plenty of other passages, too, that support the idea that someone could have real faith and fall away. And I think that definitely could be 
the case here that someone had heard the word, they had real faith, and then the cares of this world choked them out and they fell away from the faith. So, and that's kind of who I was thinking of in my mind when I was thinking about, I brought up the idea of um, some people like the, uh, that I see sometimes and like people who become delinquents in the church. But the other thing I'll say, that, and the reason I was kind of hesitating is it could also be someone who wasn't really saved. It could be a hypocrite, right? Who never really had faith, but was in the church and heard the word um, for uh, whatever reasons that they had, but they were true. They were true hypocrites, and and then they also fell away. So I think either is possible. I think more than likely what Jesus is talking about here in general is someone who really does have faith and falls away. But um, I don't. I, I'm not trying to sound like a Calvinist um, that well they never really had faith to begin with. But that does happen. There are people who never really had faith to begin with who fall away. Yeah, Barb. But could the seed lie dormant for lack of a better? Like, what about somebody who has fallen away but there's hope for them? Yeah, um, there there is hope for people who fall away, right? And um, I mean, we can't give up on. Yeah, no, no, we sir. So we, have, so we have to weed the garden. We have to go in there and weed the garden. Right, right. Right. There's thorns, yeah. Whatever it takes to get that seed to maybe. Yeah, I think um, I, I perhaps would not try to just extend the analogy. Um, <laughs> uh, just just because analogies do kind of fall apart at some point, right? And right. and Jesus stops here. What's the fertilizer? What's the water? Yeah, right, yeah. It just kind of gets. No, I think that's. Yeah, no, we should. I mean, we should. You're right. That um, that's kind of a separate question, but you're totally right. Like, yeah, we just because someone does. Um, they show the outward appearance of falling away. Right. It, that doesn't mean we should give up on them, right? And I, for the record, I call all my delinquents. Um, you know, I have a schedule by which I call my delinquent members. So. Um, no, I, I do tell them pretty honestly though, like, Hey, where you been sometimes? It depends like on the situation, but, um, I, I will tell them they need to get back in church. Uh, so yeah, it's well, I think the part of the thing is that you don't, you don't get to know this finally until the end of the age, right? right? Like, in some ways, Jesus is saying this as Jesus, and he gets to know at the end of the day when someone's fallen away and isn't coming back, right? Um, we don't get to know that, right? So with our limited knowledge, we certainly should not kind of finalize someone in this in a category. I guess that would be the point here, is that it's not up to us to say... Um, and I know this kind of goes against what I said a little bit earlier, but it's not up to us to, to say, finally, this person is in this category. Like, right, that, that's outside of our decision, right? God gets to, to, to finalize that decision at the end of the age when he comes back to, to judge the living and the dead, right? I think it's, the, I think it's helpful as kind of a diagnostic and a, a frame for us to kind of help think about situations, right? But but yeah, we shouldn't just say, oh well, they must be they must be thorny ground because it seems like they kind of fell into this category and therefore we should never try again, right? Um, I, it's not up to us to put them finally into that category. Right, I we we definitely should continue sowing, and that but that's that does fit within the analogy, right? Because the sower continues to sow the word on thorny ground, ground he knows looks thorny, right? It's not like when you're sowing the seed, you you don't know that that's the wayside, or you don't know that that's the rocks, or you don't know that that's the thorns. You know where the thorns and the rocks and the wayside are, but the sower sows it there anyway, right? And so so we should too, right? Even if we think something is thorny. We should still go ahead and keep sewing. So hopefully that kind of helps. Yeah. So 
So another point with this, what I always thought is if the, um, the concept in Timothy and Titus that talks about you shouldn't put a new convert in a leadership position. Right. Kind of gives you a little time to see whether they're in the... You know, oh, yeah, totally. It gives, gives us some, some time to see are they likely to be in that. They like said we can never know for sure, but if they've been right. a solid follower for a good period of time, they're likely going to be, they're more likely to be in that four category. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a good uh, cross-reference there is that um, there are people who hear the word, receive it with joy, get very zealous and then fall away. Yeah, and and he, yeah, and, and Timothy, I mean, he says very clearly, pastors should not be recent converts, right? Because and he says because they might become conceited and given to the temptations of the devil. Yeah, so that's a good good cross reference. All right, um, so twenty uh, one um, twenty one through thirty four. These kind of all run off of the parable of the sower, right? They're about the word of, the, of God and the kingdom growing and kind of what this fleshing out more and more what the kingdom looks like. So this is kind of a compression of some, some of the things Matthew does because Matthew um, has like more kingdom parables than anyone, right? But we get some kingdom parables here in Mark and this is kind of the first set of those is um, here starting with the parable of the sower is kind of the chief parable that Jesus takes extra time to explain. And then you get these subsequent parables uh, to kind of um, further that, right? To further that teaching a little bit. So this 30, I'm gonna take this as a block, 21 through 34, um, but we'll just read each parable one at a time and then just kind of just say what it means and then move on. But this kind of a block here. All right. Also, he said to them, is a lamp brought to be put under a basket or under a bed? Right? Uh, what's the song? How's the song go? This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. Amen. There you go. So at least someone knew it. All right, there we go. Got a couple. Um, yeah, there you go. I mean, I, I went to VBS. I know, you know. Like, don't pretend like you don't remember. Okay. Um, is it not to be set on a lampstand? For there is nothing hidden which will not be revealed, nor has anything been kept secret, but that it should come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. All right, and it, we get that repetition of that again, by the way, right? This, this idea that if, if you have the ears of faith, then hear. Then he said to them, take heed what you hear. With the same measure you use, it will be measured to you and to you who hear more will be given for whoever has to him more will be given but whoever does not have even what he has will be taken away from him okay so um there's a couple things going on here so first of all this this lamp this is the light of faith right the light of christ and when we have the light of christ we're not supposed to hide it away but we're supposed to display it right share it we're supposed to put uh the the things that change us that the light of Christ puts in us, right? The love of God and the love of neighbor. We're supposed to display those things to others, right? To be sent on a lampstand. And one of the reasons for that, that Jesus goes into here, is that um, a lot of this is kind of eschatological in view. In other words, the end of the world is in view here. Um, that when Jesus comes back again, uh, all the secrets will be revealed, Right, uh, you you can't keep this is the whole Noah, uh, jo- sorry not Noah, Jonah, and the well story. Right, you can't hide from God. Right, He knows what you're doing, even when you're at the bottom of the ship. And so, um, when you have the light of Christ, um, you should go ahead and let it shine and be open about it, because that's going to also open things up in your own life. Right. If you're um, kind of trying to hide what you think about Jesus, it's oftentimes connected because you're trying to kind of hide Jesus from yourself, right? You're trying to kind of compartmentalize. There's people who compartmentalize, right? Where you, um, you know, on, on, on Sunday, you go to church, you're a good Christian, right? Um, and 
uh, whenever maybe in, in certain social situations you kind of you're you're Christian right but then you have your kind of secret sin that you're nursing right and you you kind of pretend like Jesus can't see that right you kind of compartmentalize right and um, it, I mean it sounds kind of silly right but that I mean we've all done this right we, we've all tried to do this at times and the um, point is to let your light shine, not only to the, to the world, but also in your own life, right? Let Jesus shine the light on your sins so that you can repent of them and move on, right? And um, this, this is connected, again, it kind of runs off the parable of the sower, right? Because part of the idea here is that this will help you not get choked out by the cares of this world, right? Or taken up by Satan, Right? This will help you bear fruit, right? To keep the light bright, right? To keep it shining, right? To not hide it in any way. Okay. Um, and then he goes on about this stuff about hearing, right? So again, um, the, the one who has faith should not only hear, but take heed what he hears. And then there's this concept, he says, that with the same measure you use, it, it will be measured uh, to you. And to you who hear, more will be given. So what he's talking about here is if you let the light of Christ shine in your life and you judge things by faith and the forgiveness of sins, right, then that's how you'll be judged, right, is by faith and by the forgiveness of sins, right? Christ will come back and he will measure against you, right? This is the, by the way, when, um, I'm not even sure if it's in Mark, I don't think it is, but judge not lest ye be judged. This is the same idea. Right, judge not lest ye be judged. Never, never has meant ever in the history of the world that you should never make a value judgment about if a certain sin that someone is committing is right or wrong. Right, that's how judge not lest ye be judged is um, used by the world today. Is you're not allowed to tell me what I'm doing is sinful and wrong and wicked. Right, but that's that's never been what that's meant. What that's always meant before uh, the world has changed that around is that it's not up to you to, de- to decide who goes to heaven and hell and, and how God's going to determine that because you're not Jesus, right? You're not God. So you don't get to judge someone's eternal salvation um, a- unless you want your eternal salvation to be judged with the same strictness, right? And we don't want our eternal salvation to be judged with strictness. We want our eternal salvation to be judged with mercy, right? And so um, this is the idea, is that the one who has faith hears, and they should measure using the measure of faith and the forgiveness of sins, right? Using the measure of the word, right? And then that will be used against you too, right? Don't measure with... Uh, strict adherence to the law, right? Because you don't want to be judged based on your strict adherence to the law, right? That's that's kind of the idea here. And then we get this um, to you who ha- who who hear, to you who have faith, right, and hear and understand, more will be given, right? That there will be um, that this is kind of some of the 30, 60, 100 fold stuff here, is that as you hear and as you bear fruit. God will continue to increase that and continue to give you more understanding, right? And um, then it says to the one who does not have, right, who uh, even more will be taken away, right? And so this is talking about unbelief. When someone does not have faith, then fine, they don't have faith in this life, but then their eternal life will be taken away. Right, so this is talking about faith, right? You might have um, to the, to the one who does not hear, right? They might have the riches of this world for now, but more will be taken away, right, in the long run. But to the one who has faith, more will be given, right? Not only in this life, but in the life to come. All right, kids are back, so I guess that's that's time. All right, yep, five fifteen. All right, any questions? We'll pick up at uh, twenty six. Is where we ended. Any final questions, comments, concerns? Um, I will likely not be. Let me uh, 
let's just stop the recording here. Then we'll, well, let's let's pray. Then I'll say something. Okay, let's do that. So the prayers on the recording. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day, and we thank you for our time together, and we pray that you would uh, help us to hear and understand, that you would help us to be good soil, that we may bear much fruit. We pray this through your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.